Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. We are a nation of immigrants. My own grandparents came to this country from Lithuania with the hope of finding freedom and a better life. Immigrants have built our cities, grown our food, laid our railroad ties, and paved our roads. They have contributed to our culture in countless ways, from songs that have entered the American consciousness to award-winning films and literature. Now, more than ever, it is crucial to listen to the stories of others. Today, I invite you to do just that. Listen as we hear from authors and illustrators who came to America with a story in their hearts and hope in their eyes, and who are making this country a better place than it was without them. First, here's author Kelly Yang to tell us about her debut novel, Front Desk, and why stories like hers help immigrant kids know that they're not alone. Welcome to the studio, Kelly. It's a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on Front Desk. It's a tour de force. Tell our listeners a little bit about it and about the very spunky character of Mia Tang. Front Desk is a middle grade novel about a 10-year-old Chinese girl. She's an immigrant from China, and her parents get a job managing a motel, except that there's so many rooms that they need to clean all day, so there's no one to take care of the front desk. So she takes care of the front desk, and that's where the name comes from. And... Mia's parents, who have her best interests at heart, nonetheless often embarrass her. Could you (laughs) tell us about that? And did that by any chance reflect any of your own experiences growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think for any immigrant family, there's always a struggle to assimilate. And Mia has a lot of challenges because her parents don't have a lot of money. So they buy, you know, clothes from a a thrift shop. And so they don't, she doesn't always get to wear jeans and things like that. And so this really becomes a source of embarrassment when she gets bullied in school for this. We'd love for you to read a few pages from Front Desk to give our readers a feel for the book. Absolutely. My parents told me that America would be this amazing place where we could live in a house with a dog, do whatever we want, and eat hamburgers till we were red in the face. So far, the only part of that we've achieved is the hamburger part. But I was still holding out hope. And the hamburgers here are pretty good. The most incredible burger I've ever had was at the Houston Space Center last summer. We weren't planning on eating there. Everybody knows museum food is 50,000 times more expensive than outside food. But one whiff of the sizzling bacon as we passed by the cafe, and my knees wobbled. My parents must have heard the howls of my stomach, because the next thing I knew, my mom was rummaging through her purse for coins. We only had enough money for one hamburger, so we had to share. But man, what a burger! It was a mile high with real bacon and mayonnaise and pickles. My mom likes to tease that I devoured the whole thing in one gulp, leaving the two of them only a couple of crumbs. I like to think I gave them more than that. The other thing that was great about that space center was the free air conditioning. We were living in our car that summer, which sounds like a lot of fun, but actually wasn't because our car's AC was busted. So after the burger, my dad parked himself in front of the vent and stayed there for the entire rest of the time. 
It was like he was trying to turn his fingers into popsicles. My mom and I bounced from exhibit to exhibit instead. I could barely keep up with her. She was an engineer back in China, so she loves math and rockets. She ooed and awed over this module and that module. I wish my cousin Shen could have been there. He loves rockets. When we got to the photo booth, my mom's face lit up. The booth took a picture of you and made it look like you were a real astronaut in space. I went first. I put my head where the cardboard cutout was and smiled when the guy said cheese. When it was my mom's turn to take her photo, I thought it'd be funny to jump into her shot. The result was a picture of her in an astronaut suit hovering over Earth and me standing right next to her in my flip-flops doing bunny ears with my fingers. My mom's face crumbled when she saw the picture. She pleaded with the guy to let her take another one, but he said, nope, sorry, only one picture per person. For a second, I thought she was going to cry. We still have that picture. Every time I look at it, I wish I can go back in time. If I could do it all over again, I would not photobomb my mom's picture. And I'd give her more of my burger. Not the whole thing, but definitely some more bites. That was such a heartbreaking scene, I have to <laughs> say, the poor mom. Now, the book mirrors your experiences, but it's also fictionalized. Tell us where the lines are drawn. I think a lot of the events stem from reality, but I think that definitely a lot of the details were also maybe slightly embellished and exaggerated a little bit. But I think the emotional heart of the story is very much real. We immigrated to the U.S. when I was six years old, and I remember I had a really hard first year. It was really, really hard for me because I didn't speak a word of English. And also, my parents came over with $200, which now as a parent, I just think is just completely irresponsible. <laughs> um, but in those days, that's all the money in the world that they had. And it was a lot of money because in, back then, China was still very communist. And that, that's like a, equivalent to a one-year wage for them. Um, that's how much people in China made in a year. So 200 US dollars was actually quite a lot. And when I got here, it was just frightening because I didn't know a single word of English. Like I didn't even know the word girl, which as a girl, that means you can't find the bathroom. <laughs> and I remember the teacher assigned me a translator. And there was this, it was this Chinese boy named Jim, who was my translator, except that he completely bullied me. And he just made it very difficult for me to, to get what I want or ask for things. So I would say things to him, but he would translate like the wrong thing. And he would basically just ignore me. So I realized the importance of learning English and the importance of having your own voice for yourself, because I could not rely on this gym translator. <laughs> he was just unreliable. So I worked really, really hard with an ESL teacher. And I'll never forget, she was just the most amazing ESL teacher in the world. She would trace my feet on a piece of paper. She would like, take my shoes off and trace them with her hand. And then she'd say, this is, this is called feet. You know, and she just like word, word by word taught me English. And at the end of that year, I spoke up for the first time. I was like completely like just silent. The, I was like a mute for the entire school year. I just did not say a single word except through Jim, who refused to say it for me half the time. And then the last week of school... I got up and I, I think I announced, like, I need some more water or something like that. <laughs> and the whole class 
classroom was just like, oh my God, she can talk. <laughs> and my teacher that year was so moved that I was able to talk by the end of the year that she decided to promote me to the second grade. And I still have the report card where she says, you know, we do not, we believe that even though Yang has this problem, <laughs> that we don't believe in holding kids back because of limited English. Um, and it was amazing because by the end of the second year, I won an essay contest. So it just goes to show the power of teachers and librarians. And we had, I mean, I had some amazing librarians because I had nothing but time. And my parents were always busy. They just always were just not around. Now we have to point out here, or I am compelled <laughs> to point out, that you entered college at the age of 13. And you graduated from Harvard Law School at age 20. I think a lot of people think of um, the story, oh my God, she went to college so young. They think that I must have like tiger parents or something like that. But in fact, that wasn't the case at all. My parents were literally just so busy trying to put food on the table that they just did not even have time to like ask me what my homework was or anything like that. I did it because I wanted to get out of school early so that I could start making more money for my parents for my family. How did you have teachers who guided you or yes. mentors? How yes. did that work? I was really blessed to have amazing teachers and librarians who saw something in me that no one else, even my parents, saw. And they just, I mean, I'm like tearing up because it literally, they changed my life. Part of like what I love about the story is the community. It's such a community effort to raise a child. And we forget that, you know, we put so much pressure on the parents, but it's everybody coming together, supporting, you know, all these little kids that we have that can make a huge difference and made a huge difference in my life. That's such an important reminder, particularly when we see librarian staff being yeah. cut and school budgets being cut, just how crucial that is for so many children. Mm-hmm. In the book, you deal head-on with issues of race, discrimination, and poverty. How do you think the book will resonate with the children of immigrants who are growing up in the USA today? I hope that it will give them a lot of courage and it will give them a lot of comfort to know that other people are dealing with the same issues. I mean, unfortunately, we haven't really advanced too much in those spheres as a nation. So I think that even though this is set in the 90s, some of those issues are still going on and it's heartbreaking. So I really would love immigrant children especially to read this book and just to know that they're not alone. It's not every day that we see a child working at the front desk of a motel in a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did you first see yourself in the pages of a book? You know what? The first time I saw an Asian person in a book was probably Claudia in The Babysitter's Club. I read The Babysitter's Club and it was just like, oh my God, you mean there's? it's possible that an Asian person can actually be in a book? But of course, Claudia was very different from me. You know, she had like this perfect life and she had, you know, mom and dad in a beautiful house and all these things that I didn't have. So I never really saw poor kids on the page. And I didn't really see immigrants on the page. And I didn't see the same problems that I had on the page for a really long time, I think. I can't even remember when I saw it. And why is that sense of possibility and promise and also the issues and problems that kids face, why is it so important for all kids to be able to see themselves reflected in fiction and nonfiction? Because it's really important that all kids get to see some part of them in a story 
because that's the only way that they're going to know that their experience is quote-unquote normal, that other kids are not going to make fun of them. I was really deeply ashamed that I was working in a motel. And no one told me to be ashamed of that because I never told anyone. So it wasn't like I told someone and then they made fun of me. I never even tried because I never saw that anywhere. And so I just assumed because it doesn't exist that that must be totally not normal. Therefore, I need to hide it and be ashamed of it. Oh my gosh, that's so powerful. We talk a lot at Scholastic about the importance of children seeing themselves in the pages of a book, but it's also as important for children who may be unfamiliar with stories like yours to develop empathy. Could mm-hmm. you talk about what you hope children who this may be utterly foreign situation for them, what you hope they take away from reading your book? I hope they take away what my son took away, which is just that people... I mean, it's amazing how many people are out there living really different narratives from your own. And it's important to relate to them, to have empathy for what they're going through so that we can build a better society, so that we have more kindness in the classroom where we do get to interact and that we understand each other across cultures, across genders, so we can basically be better, more responsible, emotional human beings later on. You're not only an author, you're also quite an educator. You help children with their writing, with debating, keeping up on current events. Why are those skills so important and so foundational for kids in order to succeed? I think that, first of all, the ability to have your own voice right, is instrumental for success. It's just essential um, to be able to be heard, to have your viewpoint, you know, be an actual viewpoint that a lot of other people are going to be able to incorporate and consider, that's that's absolutely important. But also um, to be able to tackle hard issues from a young age. I think that we need to expose kids to facts and what's going on and not be so afraid of, you know, sheltering them from hard issues because they're going to be dealing with them anyway. So um, when I teach kids, you know, I talk about all sorts of things, talk about North Korea or I'll talk about whatever's going on in the world, even to like an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or whoever. And so just like in front desk, I'm not afraid to tackle things like racism and police mistreatment or poverty because those are things that a lot of kids do deal with from a very, very young age. I dealt with them. So... If we never, ever talk about it, then how are they ever going to grapple with it? Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Kelly. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Over the past two years, we've talked to many authors who have been compelled to shed light on the immigrant experience and what it means to leave your home in search of a better life. Here's Edwige Dantica, the award-winning author of many books for young readers, including Untwine, the story of Haitian-American twins who must navigate extreme loss. She'll tell us why reading the stories of others helps us see the humanity in everyone. When we read an actual story in which an individual is going through things, sometimes it's even more powerful than reading statistics or reading facts because we we become really emotionally involved in that story. So I think narrative, um, 
whether it's through a novel, whether it's a story the teacher is telling, is a very powerful tool in, in educating young people about things, you know, telling a story, because we all have a story. And some of us have a story, too, that we would like to share, that we'd like to see validated and and validated in the echoes, you know, of other stories that we read, whether it's about enslaved people or Japanese internment or the Depression or a young girl in Haiti doing the occupation or a young girl coming to the U.S. I think some of those stories resonate. Then once you know something with your heart, you know, sometimes we know a lot of things with our head. We, we can know a lot of facts, but once you know something with your heart, it's sort of imprinted on it. And that's when you can't say you don't know because you've, you've experienced it with that person because you've experienced their story. The history of, of Haiti ended painful. I mean, it, it is also triumphant. It goes through all these ups and downs. And I think as immigrants from Haiti, as an immigrant from Haiti, I carry that history with me, certainly, along with a personal history that comes out of the dictatorship and the 1960s. So all of that, for me, is processed through my work. Writing is is one of the ways that I deal with my feelings, deal with history, with personal history, with more of the communal history, with immigration. I think we can learn from a lot of painful moments and and writing is, is, is for me one of those ways to actually see a situation better, to hopefully come out of it with a, a bit more insight than when I came in. Alan Gratz is neither an immigrant nor a refugee but he is telling their stories. In Refugee, his most recent bestseller for middle grade readers, Alan shares the stories of three children from three different eras, a Jewish boy in 1930s Germany, a girl in 1990s communist Cuba, and a boy in present day Syria, all flee their homes with their families. Let's listen to a moment in the journey of 12-year-old Mahmoud. Mahmoud and his family have tried to cross the Mediterranean on a raft from Turkey to Greece. And they are into that journey some distance in when their raft strikes a rock and bursts. And they're all tossed into the water. And Mahmoud and his family are treading water. They're trying to survive. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know how they're going to get out of the water. And the life vests that they have been sold are fakes. And so they are going to drown if they can't get out of this. The part I want to read to you is a a brief part where we join Mahmoud and his family in the water. Time passed. The rain stopped. The waxing moon even peeked out from behind a cloud. But just as quickly it was dark again, and the cold wind and the salty spray and the swelling sea still tormented them. Mahmoud's legs were numb with cold and exhaustion. They felt like two lead weights he struggled to lift and churn to stay afloat. His mother had been quietly sobbing for what seemed like forever. Her arms no longer held Hana above the water, but just on top of it, like she was pushing along a tiny barge. Mahmoud's father did the same with Walid, trying to save his strength. Hana had gone as quiet as Walid, and Mahmoud wondered if they were still alive. He couldn't ask. Wouldn't. If he didn't ask, he couldn't know for sure. And as long as he didn't know for sure, there was a chance they were still alive. 
Mahmoud slipped beneath the waves again, longer this time than the last time. It was getting so hard to come up again to keep himself afloat. He rose again, pushing air out his nose, but he was tired, so very, very tired. He wished for a respite from swimming, just a moment to sit without working his arms and legs, to close his eyes and go to sleep. Water was sloshing in and out of Mahmoud's ears, but he thought he heard a drone just above the howl of the wind. In Syria, that sound would have sent him ducking for cover, but now it made his eyes widen, his legs kick just a little harder, a little higher. There, coming at them out of the darkness, another dinghy full of people. Mahmoud and his mother and father waved their arms and cried out for help. At last, the people on board saw them, but as the dinghy came closer, it didn't slow down. They weren't going to stop. The front of the dinghy chopped past Mahmoud, and he lunged for one of the handholds along the side. He caught on and grabbed his mother before the dinghy pulled him away. He swung Mom to the side of the dinghy, and she grabbed hold, the wake from it almost swamping Hana. Behind them, Mahmoud's father also reached for the dinghy, but missed. It churned along, bouncing in the chop, and Mahmoud's father and brother disappeared into the darkness. Dad! Dad! Mahmoud cried, still holding on to the dinghy. Let go! A woman in the dinghy yelled down at him. You're dragging on us! Let us in, please! Mahmoud begged. It was all his mother could do to hang on to the dinghy and to Hana. We can't! There's no room! A man inside the dinghy yelled. Please! Mahmoud begged. We're drowning! I'll call the Coast Guard for you, a man said. I have their number on my phone. Another man reached down and tried to pry Mahmoud's hand from the dinghy. You're tipping us. Please, Mahmoud cried. He sobbed with the effort of fighting off the man's fingers and hanging on to the dinghy. Please, take us with you. No, no room. At least take my sister, Mahmoud begged. She's a baby. She won't take up any room. That caused much yelling and discussion on the boat. A man tried to pry Mahmoud loose again, but he hung on. Please, Mahmoud begged. A woman appeared at the side of the boat, her arms reaching down to Mahmoud's mother, reaching for the baby. Mahmoud's mother lifted the little ball of wet blankets up to the woman. Her name is Hana, she said, struggling to be heard above the roar of the engine and the splash of the waves. Someone finally pried Mahmoud's fingers off the side, and he slipped into the water and tumbled into the dinghy's wake. When he came up, he saw his mother had let go of the dinghy, too. She was crying great howling tears and tearing at her clothes. Mahmoud swam over to her and wrestled her hands into stillness, and she put her head on Mahmoud's shoulder and sobbed. Mahmoud's sister was gone, and so were his father and brother. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. Thank you. It was crushing, but you show why you can't put this book down. Yeah, I sorry that that scene when I chose it, I um, I I was worried because I, I often cry at the end of it, and if I start <laughs> crying while I'm reading it, you won't be able to hear the words. So I made it this time, but trying to to be very clear to these kids that this is a life and death situation for these families, and that there is great loss. You know, hundreds of the Jewish refugees on board the MS St. Louis died in the Holocaust when they, that ship returned to Europe after being turned away from Cuba and the United States and Canada and a number of other countries. And it's estimated that three out of every five Cuban refugees who left on a raft in the 90s died on that trip. And we know that many Syrian refugees perish on that journey from Turkey to Greece. They're stuffed into dinghies that are made for 12 people, and there might be 30, 40, 50 people on those dinghies. They have 
no navigation equipment. They have life jackets that often don't work. Um, and the coast guards of Turkey and, and Greece and other Mediterranean countries do their best to save people when they can. But uh, part of the way that they get there is to go undercover, to, to leave when people can't see them. Um, and, and therefore, the, the refugees are deliberately trying not to be seen for much of that trip. Many people die on that voyage. And I thought it would be a disservice to give any of these situations and not show loss. We, we don't know what becomes of Hannah after this moment. She's handed off and she's not seen again for part of the book. And I think it's important for the kids to understand, the kids who are reading this to understand that, that people are lost on this voyage. People that the refugees care about, their, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers, that this is a, a perilous journey and people are going through it every single day. There is danger, loss, and pain inherent in any journey to the unknown. But everyone who takes that risk knows what it is to have strength and hope and love. They are, in short, heroic. As author Sayantani Dasgupta reminds us, immigrant children must be able to see that they too can be the heroes of their own stories. That is what inspired her to write her stunning debut novel, The Serpent's Secret. I didn't have a lot of books with protagonists who looked like me. And that was all right. I mean, I loved Joe March in Little Women, and I loved Meg Murray in A Wrinkle in Time. Um, but there was always that extra piece missing where there wasn't an immigrant daughter like me who I could read about, who was being brave and heroic. There wasn't kind of a brown-skinned girl like me who was out there saving the world. So it inspired me to go back to the stories I loved as a little girl that I heard from my grandma and write a story where you could see an immigrant daughter being brave and heroic and saving the world. In a sense, um, this book is as much a tribute to immigrant families like mine as anything else, because I really feel like immigrants are superheroes. Like they can straddle the ordinary and the extraordinary and multiple worlds and multiple languages and multiple ways of being. And so I kind of wanted to capture and honor all of that in the story. Like Sayantani, author and illustrator Rasheen K. Ria searched desperately for stories that reflected her experience as an Iranian immigrant. When she found nothing, she wrote the picture book, Saffron Ice Cream. I had a lot of good memories from my childhood uh, growing up in Iran. So the food was great. I remember that my mom makes halim, which was my, one of my fav favorite breakfasts. And then after that, great memories from going to the beach to the Caspian Sea in the summers with my dad and my friends and all the family, the beautiful country. When I was little, I was always had a great passion to be a painter because my mom was a painter and she was encouraging me to continue art when I grew up. So when I was 16 years old, I went to the art school in Tehran called Azadegan, which was the first art school for girls. And then... 
I studied graphic design, and then eventually I got in love with illustrating for literature, especially children's literature. It was 2011 when I first came to the U.S., and as an illustrator for children's books, I was curious to see children's books in the United States bookstores. So I went to a lot of bookstores, look and look, and unfortunately, I couldn't find any children's books about Iran in that time. So I realized that people here didn't know my culture very well. And also, there was a lot of misconception in the media about Iran. And so that makes me think to write my own book. Saffron Ice Cream is the story of a little girl, Rasheen, who is excited about her first trip to the beach in her family's new home, Brooklyn. She remembers how much she loved her family's trips to the Caspian Sea when they lived in Iran, especially the saffron ice cream. Here's what happens when Rasheen goes to Coney Island. A block from the beach, my mother points to a truck with a window in it and a small line of kids jumping up and down. Look, Rasheen, says my mother, an ice cream seller, just like back home. Well, not just like, I think. But I wait on that line, hoping, hoping they will have the delicious saffron flavor Azada and I used to love so much. Sorry, sweetheart, says the lady in the truck window. No saffron. Would you like something else? I can't help it. I start to cry. I miss the Caspian Sea. I miss Azada. I miss everything. Hey, kid, try chocolate crunch. That's my favorite, says a sweet-faced girl with brown skin and a bright orange shirt. She is smiling, so I smile too, and I feel a little better. Turns out, chocolate crunch is a pretty good flavor too. I can't wait to write and tell Azada all about it. I chose saffron ice cream as a symbolic item to introduce Iran because it's kind of made out of saffron, pistachio, rose water, all the taste from Iran. I think uh, with a bite of saffron ice cream, you can just describe Iran out of it. There is a great metaphor. It says people want to bridge everything. So despite all the differences between different cultures, it's really nice that People share the beautiful things about each other in a community and celebrate diversity and humanity in general. One thing that I really love about saffron ice cream is the message that the kindness of one person can mean everything to someone who is hurting and alone. Carmen Agraditi, award-winning storyteller and author of the 2017 picture book, the rooster who would not be quiet, fled Cuba with her family in the 1960s. Here is her story about how kindness helped ease her family's journey. We came when I was a little girl. We, we left legally. We came through Mexico. I was, I was um, very hungry. I will forever be grateful to the Mexican people. Because I brought my dress today. Uh, you can't see it on a podcast, but it's a little tiny checkered dress my grandmother made for me. And um, I was three years old, and that dress fit my granddaughter when she was 18 months old. 
And that tells you how starved I was. I mean, we're just the mal, we were so, the, the malnutrition was terrible. We were on ration cards. So we got to Mexico and these Mexican ladies out on the street with their tortillas would see me and would look at my sister and say, look at the little girls, eh? They are like little twigs. Pero mira las muchapapitas, pobrecitas, eh? And they would hand us tortillas and sopapillas. And oh my God, I ate my way through Mexico City. I think I grew two inches in two months. And then we, we had visas, new visas that brought us here. When we arrived in the U.S., our cousin brought us to Decatur, Georgia. Oh where, my. Yes, I know, I know. It just, it seems so wrong. It's like, here we are all talking Espanol, yeah. and my father has a little English, my mother has a little English, my sister and I have nothing. Um, and we are surrounded with these lovely sponsors, all who talk like that. Oh, Mr. Agra, Miss Agra, we are so glad you're here. God bless your hearts. Well, we have a lovely apartment for you. And the, our first apartment was the attic of a couple, an older couple from the First Baptist Church. And um, <laughs> it wasn't until I was a young woman and my first book was published that I was on that path that sometimes happens when you're older. You want to find out things about your childhood. I went back to visit the Leslies. They were gone. And then one day telling stories in a school, a woman appears. She is the daughter of Mr. Leslie. And I said, Mr. Leslie's. Oh, yes. She was, Mrs. Leslie was his second wife. They met in the war. I said, World War II? She said, oh, yes. He was a GI, and she had spent many years at Bergen-Belsen. Oh, gosh. And that is why she took us in. So, of course, I go scurrying back to my parents. I said, Mrs. Leslie was in a concentration camp? I said, no, she was Jewish. My father said, she was not Jewish. I said, wait, 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 why was she in a concentration camp? Her father was a, a sailor on the road. I said, a peddler. Yes, that one. I said, okay. And they did not have papers. And they were arrested and they thought that they were Jewish and they were not. And I said, you are kidding me. No. And so it turns out, years later, I found out from my father that Mrs. Leslie and he spent hours in the evenings. And she was considerably older than he. Mm-hmm doing or uh, having English lessons, but those English lessons were really the telling of stories to one another. She had been put in charge of the children for a brief period at Belson before the liberation. And this was the woman who took in the refugees. As Carmen reminds us, sometimes it's best to stand up for what's right through quiet acts of selflessness. Other times, you must shout it from the rooftops. Carmen's picture book, The Rooster Who Would Not Be Quiet, is a tribute to the latter. In it, a brave little rooster comes to a town where noise has been outlawed by the mayor. Despite warning after warning and punishment after punishment, the rooster continues to do what he was born to do, sing, The book is a powerful message to stand up for what you believe in. But the inspiration for the story comes from a dark place. I was at a Cuban restaurant in my little town. And this young man waited on me. He was very quiet. And after the end of the meal, in the very Cuban and Southern way, I asked him what his name was. We talked to wait people. We asked them about their families, their children, their ailments, their, their, their kidney failure. They're bunions. It doesn't matter. 
I couldn't draw much out of him, but he told me his name was Ulysses. Of course, I'm a reader, right? And, and I immediately thought, oh my God, of course it's Ulysses. What else could it be? I asked him a little bit about how, where he came from. He didn't speak English. And he said, oh, I arrived lately. It took months. But I was able to slowly, slowly draw his story from him. He was a prisoner of conscience. As a young man, he had burned the Soviet flag and the Cuban flag. He was arrested. He was a teenager. He was 16. And he explained to me the things that happened to him. And the things that happened to him are what happened to this rooster. First, you lose your freedom. Then they don't let you see your family. Then they take away your food. Then they put you in the dark. That's why the page in the book that's black, that has the rooster singing, is because there is no one in this world as courageous, as brave, as she or he who sings alone in the dark. Thank you so much to the authors who shared and continue to share their stories with the world. May they reach the child who needs them. And thank you for listening. As Edwige says, now you can't say you don't know, and that is a powerful thing. To learn more about the authors and books mentioned in this episode, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.